Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you're an educator or know someone who is, these stats won't surprise you. A RAND Corporation survey from this year finds U.S. teachers and principals experience frequent job-related stress, twice that of the general working adult population. And the well-being of Hispanic, Latinx teachers, mid-career teachers, female teachers, and principals is reported as especially poor. A recent Gallup workforce study finds educators are among the most burned-out groups in the U.S. workforce. Gallup finds more than 4 in 10 K-12 through workers in the U.S. say they always or very often feel burned out at work, outpacing all other industries nationally. Local school districts know teacher loss is a big problem, especially since the start of the pandemic. Today, where we live, what are school districts doing about it? Coming up, we hear more from Connecticut Public's education reporter, Catherine Shen, and we talk to a former teacher now working in New Haven's public schools in a role meant to support educators and students' mental health. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we hear from education reporter Catherine Shen, Where We Live reached a paraeducator who has spoken about the level of burnout she's experienced. Monique Revelise is a paraeducator in Canterbury, she took this job after resigning as a paraeducator in Killingly Public Schools in August 2021, saying contract negotiations felt left her feeling disillusioned and disrespected. Here's Monique speaking to senior producer Sujata Srinivasan. You know, it is contract negotiations. This is our livelihood. And, you know, we showed up prepared and um, ready to be taken seriously because it is at the end of the day, it's a business, right? And um, we were treated terribly by the, the Board of Ed members after six hours, none of which we were paid for because we were there in our own time. They came back with a 1% increase. And during that time, during the negotiations, and I will not name the board member that did this, but this person actually zoomed in from their hot tub for these negotiations. So if that didn't tell us pretty much everything we needed to know at that point about who we were dealing with, um, then, you know, I don't know what else to say. I left there so I felt sad and I felt not valued at all. And when I went home, I uh, went online that night and I found the job in Canterbury. And I it took a couple of months because they were waiting for a grant to go through. Um, and then they called me in August and I had an interview and I gave my notice in August, uh, probably about two weeks before school began, saying I would not be there at the start of the new year. And I told them why. Killingly is one of the lowest paid districts in all of Connecticut. But if you ask the Board of Ed, they claim that they are competitive. That is not true. Um, I work maybe 18 minute drive away from Killingly and I'm making $4.50 more an hour. Now, 
I don't know what they consider competitive, but $4.50 more an hour is a huge increase. That's not something small. And paras, I know, are not paid, you know, it's not the kind of job that you're ever going to get rich in, but we do love what we do and we have a passion for it. Every para that works in Killingly really does do it because they love what they do. None of them are there for any other reason. And they lost so many paras in the last year, so many staff members. It's because, so I know why I left. It wasn't just the pay. It was, I mean, that had a little bit to do with it. But like we were asking for things like, like we got four paid holidays a year. And even inside the schools, the custodial staff got paid 10 holidays a year. We were like, what? They said, well, you're, you're only seasonal employees, meaning, you know, we're 10 month employees. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with it. I get 11 paid holidays where I am now. I mean, when you value your employees, one of the ways that you can show them that you value them is to pay them and to treat them with respect. That's paraeducator Monique Revelise. And given what she shared about her former school district and the school board in Killingly, we reached out to Killingly Public Schools. Robert Angeli, superintendent, said the Killingly Board of Education and the Paraprofessionals Union successfully negotiated a contract in 2021. He also shared this in a statement to where we live, quote, during the negotiations, the members of the board's committee did recognize the pay rate and leave time were low compared to other local school districts. They negotiated contract mutually acceptable to both the board and the union made improvement in both areas. He goes on to say that Killingly Public Schools, like many school districts across Connecticut and the nation, have experienced higher than normal turnover in several staff areas since covid Andy says, I do not remember any members of the board's committee participating in the negotiations remotely from a hot tub. With us now on the phone is Catherine Shen, who's education reporter for Connecticut Public. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to unpack there. I wanted to get your response to what Monique shared as a paraeducator. Her experience of being disrespected and underpaid, is that a systemic problem for paraeducators? I know you've reported on this. This is this is definitely not the first time I'm hearing this kind of sentiment from a paraeducator. I, I have to say, every paraprofessional that I have spoken with and interviewed over the last couple months have echoed very similar sentiments from their workplace. And while while their experience may not, in general, be so negative as how Monique's experience or how she's describing her experience as, but very generally, though, um, the disrespect seems to be a collective agreement among all the paraprofessionals, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. So this is certainly not something new that I'm hearing from Monique. And um, it is a systemic problem in terms of paraeducators being underpaid. Um, if you consider the jobs that they have to do, which is varied depending on the district, they are severely underpaid. And basically, based on a state report that was made a couple of years ago, the average pay for a paraeducator is $30,000. That's not a lot for no. anyone. And so that's really a huge problem that's ongoing and there needs to be change. Uh, Catherine, uh, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with paraprofessionals, you mentioned that the roles vary depending on districts. So can you lay that out for us when we talk about paraprofessionals, paraeducators, what are they doing in the classroom, in the schools? Sure. So 
usually paraprofessionals play a pretty important role in the classroom. They basically serve as the main teacher's second set of eyes and ears for either a group of students or individual students. It really depends on what their role is for, for that classroom. So, for example, if, if say, one paraeducator has three students, then they will keep their eyes on them, see what they need, whether it's a behavioral need or or a mental health need or an academic need. Um, I spoke to a para a couple months ago, and then she has one student who is very high functioning, but just needs that extra care to express what the student needs to the teacher. And so by being able to do that, then so the para can focus on the, on the student, whereas the main teacher can focus on the classroom. So it's really sort of a team effort sort of scenario. But then you also have paraeducators who only focus on special education students, and certain districts have special education classrooms. So, I mean, just based on what I said in the last 30 seconds, you can see how varied the role is and how different in each district that role can be. So, and right now, there's actually not really a structure um, to that. There's no real de- definition of what paraprofessionals are. So, that's actually part of the conversation of there is a need for a structure, um, even just to define what the roles are to help them with the systemic issues that we've been talking about. We thought it was important when we talk about uh, the, the mental well-being uh, of teachers that we don't forget about other educators in the building like paras uh, who are also, uh, you know, working in classrooms with students and have seen so many challenges since the start of the, the pandemic. Uh, and so when we think about who's filling these roles, you mentioned the low pay, CAD, you know, is this seen as like a part-time job for some? And, you know, are, do they feel valued uh, in their their school? Uh, given, you know, the pay structure even? I think a lot of paraprofessionals will say they feel valued by their students, but they don't feel valued by a lot of other people. And so when when Monique mentioned the disrespect she she feels from her previous um, school district or previous work, that unfortunately is something that I've been hearing collectively from from most of the paraeducators that I've spoken with, both um, educators who have been in the industry for years and years and those who are just starting out. And for those who are just starting out, it's, it's also unfortunate because what Monique said about the passion, I can't tell you the passion that you feel when you talk to these paraeducators. They really are there because they love their job. They love what they do. They know they can make a difference. But unfortunately, that cannot sustain you, right? Um, you, can, you can't eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner on that, on that passion. And so, so you mentioned pay structure, that being a systemic problem, it's, it's a driving force for a lot of really great paras to leave the industry. And so that's that's part of this sort of global problem um, with the paras, and they, and quite quite frankly, a lot of them don't know what to do, and and they they love the job. A lot of them actually have to take a second job, and a lot of times it is a part time job. But you also have to have certain certifications for it to be full time, and many of them can't afford to get that certification because of the pay structure. So it's kind of this vicious cycle that I know we can go for days about, but we're just kind of scraping the surface. You're hearing Catherine Shen here, where we live, education reporter for Connecticut Public, as we talk about a high burnout and school climate among K through 12 
educators, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. You know, focusing on, on teachers now, Catherine, last week we talked about education, among other topics, with Governor Ned Lamont. And I asked the governor about teacher shortages in local districts, also teacher burnout. Here's some of what he shared with us. So I think respect is number one. Let, let your teacher know you love them and thank you for what you're doing. Uh, but we do need more teachers. And uh, I've tried to address that a couple of ways. Um, one, during COVID, and we've continued this, we have more apprentice teachers. So he mentioned apprentice teachers, Catherine. I'm wondering if you can explain who they are and are schools looking to hire them. I think on the first day of this school year, there were reports that Hartford Public, New Haven Public Schools, dealing with a lot of teacher shortages. Right. So um, in terms of Hartford Public Schools, because I did actually cover them um, a few weeks before uh, back to school and on the first day of school, and the superintendent at the time shared with me that, so they go through this process in the spring where they, that's kind of when they start to hire teachers. And they are also focused on hiring teachers that sort of gone through the, the like the locals and state pipeline of um, encouraging high school students to go to college to become teachers and eventually sort of come back to their local district, um, which helps with um, teachers who know the area and who wants to um, be back in the place where they grew up. That's all very beneficial for future students and for teacher staff. And so um, speaking to Hartford Public Schools, they did mention that they were able to hire a lot of teachers, um, but that doesn't mean they don't have a, a teacher shortage. And a lot of them also emphasize that this is a problem that's happened before the pandemic. Um, it's just been exacerbated by the pandemic, as we can all imagine. And and the funny thing is, not the funny thing, but the funny thing is what what the governor said, it really echoes with what you hear from the paraeducation standpoint as well. Um, it seems like both teachers and paras are experiencing the same issues. And I've spoken with a teacher where it's the same thing, like I said earlier, where they feel love from their students, but not from elsewhere. And a lot of that support and love that you hear from the community, it needs to go beyond the lawn sign. So I think we always come back down to pay and benefits and all that jazz. And it's good to hear that they're working to hire new teachers, up and coming uh, teachers, as you mentioned, college students close to getting their degrees. But then the problem remains retention, Catherine. You know, who's looking at this profession when, you know, they see all the challenges and, you know, they hear from, from teachers and others that they're burnt out and they feel like they're not appreciated? Right. And I actually spoke with um, some teachers from Stanford Public Schools where they do have an ongoing program that is helping doing just that, is to recruit teachers and retain them. And I, and I think we're kind of going around the circle here, but in terms of retainment, we come back down to, is it competitive pay? Can they, can they afford to live in the space that they're in? And um, are they getting the support if they feel burned out? It's just that vicious cycle that I feel like we're just kind of going around and around right now. Governor Lamont also mentioned on our program last week that there's an accelerated teacher program at some state schools, like Southern Connecticut State University. Um, he said that this is, makes it easier for them to become teachers, and it's also not an expensive program to get that degree. You know, what have you heard about this program uh, to help uh, bolster numbers in local districts, Catherine? 
So um, I, I've heard a lot in the last, say, a year or two, there really is this focus on on encouraging local students to to go to school for for programs like that and come back to to the school districts and and I think one of the reasons is is to is to sort of re-educate the community of what being an educator is and to sort of bolster that respect right the fact that the governor the first thing that he mentioned in the clip was to have that respect I think there's a different kind of energy when you're encouraging younger high school students um, to go to school, to come back and teach. I think it's a different sort of energy or a different vibe, if you will, um, that they're excited to go to school, to be able to give back to their community. And that's kind of what I've been hearing from, from students who are either in the program or similar programs and are looking forward to being back to um, the school districts that they're from. And when you have students like that who are so inspired and coming back to their school districts, they bring back a different kind of sort of philosophy. And and that really impacts not just themselves and their students, but also their peers is what I've been hearing. When we talk about mental well-being, uh, given you know all of the pressures on educators, we know, Catherine, there are a lot of legislative measures passed in the General Assembly's last session really focused on providing funding for mental health, uh, thinking about mental health of students. So making sure there's a number, a certain amount of social workers and uh, more uh, help with socio-emotional learning. But I am wondering, you know, what's being done, you know, in terms of funding to support districts thinking about the mental well-being of their teachers and paras? I think it's it's sort of um, they're all interconnected with each other and and with the with the mental health bills that you mentioned, I think the total is about three hundred million dollars going into the variety of things that that you said, like hiring psychologists, counselors. Um, I do know a part of it also includes giving teachers uninterrupted lunch lunch periods, which may sound really crazy to you, but um, most most teachers don't have a break during the day. In fact, most of them work into the night, into the weekends, because they don't have the time to work on those extra um, loads, if you will. And so, so part of those bills are going into that, and we mentioned um, teacher recruitment, minority teacher recruitment, increasing those numbers help with teacher workload. So I think that's sort of that indirect way of helping teachers with their mental health. Um, I also know part of the funding is also going into salaries for childcare and early childhood education. And so we can start young. Um, That's obviously beneficial for teachers who are already in the workforce. And and I think that also helps with giving teachers smaller classrooms by increasing the numbers. That's probably one of the number one things I hear from teachers is there's just too much to do. So if you can take it off their shoulders, I, that's sort of that in, another indirect way of helping them with their mental health. You can join our conversation as we focus on K through 12 educators and their mental well-being. Our show is on live often during the school day, so it might be hard for teachers to be calling in. But maybe you have a teacher in your family and you can share uh, what they have experienced over the last two and a half years. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when, we, when we talk about burnout and thinking about you know all the different professions, 
Americans uh, that um, have had a lot on their plate over the last two and a half years, Catherine, uh, thinking about every profession having mental health stressors. So, you know, how do we isolate and say that, you know, a person's anxiety is related to their teaching profession? What do we know? That's such a great question because who's not stressed right now, right? Um, <laughs> but I think for teachers, it's they have such a unique workspace. They deal with literally everyone. They have a classroom filled with filled with students. You be and beyond the classroom, they have parents and they have their peers, and then. And then let alone throwing in whatever outside noise that you can possibly think of, um, they have a lot going on. And, and I think the bottom line for them is, say, there is a very traumatic event that happens at a school. They don't have the capacity to deal with that. And in fact, trauma doesn't have to be something as dramatic as that. It can be having a parent um, come at you because they don't agree with your curriculum or have school boards attacked your curriculum. Just it's the outside noises that you and I may not experience in our daily lives, but teachers do. And in fact, I was just speaking to a parent whose adult son is now a history teacher. He just started out, this is his first year, but he's already being attacked from parents because of his history curriculum. So how do you deal with that as a young professional, right? And then we come back to that cycle again where it's, it's because of this that a lot of them eventually leave the industry. And so that's sort of what I get from the educators that I've been speaking with is, sure, we, you know, they signed up to be in the classroom, but a lot of them didn't really sign up for a lot of the outside noises that come along with it, especially today, especially with social media, with the news cycle going on 24-7. It's just, it's a lot. I know that uh, you did reporting after the Uvalde school shooting. We talked to two teachers here on the show as well. That's a, a perfect example of when something traumatic has happened and the teachers need to show up the next day and carry on like nothing happened. That's a lot of stress to carry, Catherine. Yes, and I, I spoke with uh, Jocelyn uh, Delancey. She's the vice president for Connecticut Education Association the, the day after. And she she said it's no secret that teachers are suffering right now in terms of being able to both teach and care for students. And that may sound very normal to you, but now there's an expectation that teachers are not only there to keep the kids emotionally safe, but physically safe as well. And I mean, I was talking to educators yesterday, and I, I made the comment that when I was in school, a lot of the stressors that the kids have today didn't exist. Um, I didn't do shooting drills. I did earthquake drills. And I can't imagine being in that psyche right now. And so, so, so her perspective is also trauma training. Teachers don't have that, really. And they have an expectation to be able to talk about the Uvalde school shootings the day after when they haven't even had a chance to digest it. So it's, it's a lot for, for teachers. There is a crisis right now. And, and they, they really hope to have more voices to help advocate for what they need, especially when it comes to mental health. You're hearing Catherine Shen here where we live, education reporter for Connecticut Public, as we talk about the mental well-being of teachers and other educators in K-12 through 12 
education. We want to know how are school districts responding. We're going to hear from a former teacher right after the break who's working in New Haven Public Schools to support the mental health of educators and students. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Burnout is high among teachers and staff in K-12 education nationwide. A RAND Corporation report finds teaching conditions, not the work of teaching itself, <clears throat> excuse me, are what they find to be stressful. Those challenges in the classroom were amplified in the pandemic. Now, two and a half years later, schools in Connecticut and across the country are dealing with teacher loss. RAND Report co-author and policy researcher Cy Doan says mental health supports exist. But in order to be effective, district leaders should avoid the appearance of treating wellness as a superficial or short-term problem. How are local school districts responding? Are you an educator in K-12 schools? We want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Marta is calling in from Meriden. Marta, what did you want to share? Uh, yes, hi. I am actually a teacher. Um, I'm actually home right now because after two and a half years, I finally got COVID. And the stress has been uh, quite difficult in terms of trying to figure out how to teach to students whose parents are not uh, necessarily involved and uh, uh, just the different stressors that they're dealing with. So it's very difficult to try to figure out, like, well, how can I teach you math when you're mentally not prepared and psychologically not prepared to absorb that information and to just engage with the information. Mm. I wish there were more counselors and social workers in the school system. I'm sorry to hear that you have COVID, Marto. We hope that you get better soon. Uh, when you think about the stress that your, your students are under and the parents who are not engaged, you know, where do you get support? Is your administration backing you? Uh, they try their best, but I mean, with... Uh, like I said, there's such shortage of uh, everything in the school system that I am not sure how uh, 
it is expected for one social worker and one psychologist to deal with almost 800 students in any building, if not more. I worked in New Haven before, and the resources are even less than in Meriden, uh, and it also depends on the school that they're in. So it's just very frustrating to see the inequalities even within one district. Thank you, Marta, for sharing that uh, with us. Uh, for another perspective, and again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Cameo Thorne is with us on Zoom. She's a restorative practice program director for New Haven Public Schools, a former teacher, and also New Haven Teachers Union delegate. Cameo, welcome. Good morning. Um, I was just listening to what Marta said, and and one of the things I wanted to add to that is that most schools have social workers and psychologists, however, and, and everybody knows that, but what they don't know is that, especially in districts like New Haven that are strapped for cash, they're only hired to cover the federally mandated hours for students with IEPs. So their time, day one, is already used before anything else happens. We don't necessarily, unless schools have money to buy for it outside of their normal, you know, they might have some fund or grant that they get. They might be able to pull in some outside organizations, but the students, you know, I've, as working in a school, I've had to pull a social worker if a student is suicidal, but she's now giving up hours. She has to figure out how to give back because those hours were already slated for kids mm. who have individual educational plans. So it, it, people will say you have them. And yes, there's like 800 students and, but they're actually, they, it's not 800 students. It's the number of students they've been assigned mm-hmm. to. So, so I just want to make that really clear because I don't think there are a lot, mm-hmm. there's a lot about education that is misunderstood. Yeah, Cameo, uh, when I mentioned all the funding that's been allocated uh, this last session towards hiring more social workers and counselors, how will that uh, address what you see even in New Haven public schools? Well, that's a complicated thing. Training is really important. Experience is important. Um, I, I I will wait to see how that the outcome of that. You know, I've been a mentor for new teachers many, many times. And there's the I'm well-trained and, oh, my God, this is the reality, right? <laughs> so um, seasoned people are what we need, right? Um, and I'm not saying we don't need new people, too, but they need mentors. Right. Not, because, just, not just adding the number, but making right. sure that it really needs to be well-structured. Um, and sometimes we miss the well-structured part. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to do today is to contextualize a little bit this mental health crisis, and I'm going to put it in quotes, um, by saying back in 2016-17, I left the classroom. I'm still in the teachers union. I'm still teaching in New Haven, but I have this other role. And I started doing trainings about climate and how to address some of these issues in the classroom. And it was very clear to me very early on, I knew I had a lot of stress as a teacher that teachers were drowning, like literally drowning. And so I went in collaboration with the district, we did a little stress workplace stress wellness survey and 531 teachers responded, which is really only about a quarter, little, little more than a quarter of the teachers we had at the time. And one of the questions we asked was work is such a significant source of stress that check all that apply. So I'll just give you the highest numbers first. Um, Let me see. I've considered looking for work in another dress, almost 60%. I've considered changing careers, 47%. 
I'm less productive at work, 35%. I've missed work due to illness, due to stress, 23%. I'm burnt out, 48.66%. It interferes with my personal time with my family, 57%. Right? Now, that was 2017. Right? And when I look at that and we ask the question, what's causing the stress? 71.75 said workload and 51.6 said working environment. So the reason I prompt, I pushed to do this is because at the time I knew we were working under such loads of stress. The teachers were looking for other places to go, looking for other careers because they were stressed. And some of what's been mentioned here is part of it, mm-hmm. but I'd like to, there were comments, it was a comment section in my survey. And so I'd like to sort of talk about, I'd like to say some of the things mm-hmm. they said. And Cami, um, before yep. you get there, Owen, I had introduced you as a restorative practice program director. Can you tell us what you're doing now? And when you talk about climate and how you're hearing from teachers, how you're responding to help them? So one of the, so part of restorative practices is about building community. 80% of the work is preventative, but it, the preventative part is how I create a community where we feel safe and included. How we co-create a culturally depend, uh, a culturally competent community because cultural competence is incredibly complicated. You know, I joke when I'm doing the training that, you know, I could have a family move in and mom's from Afghanistan and dad's from Cuba and they just moved here from Alabama. This is the nature of the city, right? And what culture am I speaking to? So at the very beginning, you have to make room for each other's stories. Their lived experiences of values like respect. Their lived experience of values like safety. You know, how does your community get safety? And to understand those things before we can agree to be in community in ways where we're supporting one another healthily, right? So that's one of the things that's really crucial to um, making the climate feel mm-hmm. safer, but also making people feel included and heard, right? Um, there has to be time in the school day for that. That's the big tension because, yes, reading scores and math scores are not what we want them to be. But as I think Marta just said, students mm-hmm. come not necessarily prepared to do that heavy lifting. We have to set the stage for them to be prepared. And that's, that's a great deal of the work that I am trying to train people to do and students to do as well. So, so fitting that into the, the school day, as you mentioned, you're, you're holding workshops also to help teachers and paras with their mental well-being. So how do you do it? Are these professional development days where you spend the time? And I'm just wondering if you can t- talk through some of uh, you know, the processes that you follow and some of the outcomes. It's really difficult during COVID because of the shortages. Um, we did some workshops this summer with principals um, that were well-received. Um, in fact, they felt the lack of that ability to sit and, and really talk to each other and not be siloed because teachers are siloed in the classroom and building leaders and administrators are siloed in the office. And, and when I say siloed, it's not that they don't want to interact. It's that the workload is so intense. They don't have time to interact. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, honestly, when we don't know each other, we make up stuff about each other. We've been doing it since grade school. We're still doing it as adults. So it's really important to hear each other's perspectives. Um, so sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes, but it's much less since we've come back to school from COVID. 
because it's very difficult to find the time with the shortages that we have right now. When we talk to policymakers about uh, teacher burnout and the shortages that are being seen, you know they'll point to programs uh, to help uh, hire more teachers, new teachers. But I'm just wondering if you can respond to that uh, that way of thinking about how to address a problem when there are so many longstanding issues, as you mentioned, way before the pandemic. <sighs> so, you know, I would always love to get back and talk to people in teacher prep because the first step is we prepare teachers well to teach a subject. We do not prepare teachers well to be in a classroom. Um, I've been a mentor of teachers. The reality of the workload, the reality of the student needs, the reality of the place. You know, 10 weeks of student teaching doesn't give you that. And I don't know if any, most of the student teaching programs, it's tiered. Like you start with one class and then by the time you get to the 10 years, you may be doing 10 weeks, you may be doing the whole load, but we're not talking about nine months of like when you get to March, your eyeballs are bugging out of your head and you look like you're, you know, you need a vacation for a year. Um, we call it the March look. When you see it in October, like we did last year, we were like, oh no, they look like March and October, right? You, people really have to have more time and more conversation with experienced classroom teachers. Classroom has changed tremendously since I entered the classroom in 2000. Mm. Tremendously. One of the teachers in the comments said that 20 years ago, this is 2017, she used to enjoy teaching, but it had, all the joy was gone because of all the stress. Mm. Um, and, And I think I love teaching. I don't love working under those, the conditions that I worked under. I don't. And, and I think that, you know, one other piece of this survey that I thought was really important to mention is the number of hours that teachers in 2017 reported in this survey that they were working. Um, and the first question I asked was, on Monday through Friday, what's your average n- number of hours you work? Um, 40 to 49 was about 40%, but 50% was 50 to 60 hours. Then I asked, how many times a month do you bring work home? More than twice a month was answered by 75%. And then we asked the question, because we wanted to get clear on that, how many average hours are you working on the weekend when you do that? And the answer, the biggest answer was 1 to 6, 38%. And the next biggest one was 7 to 10 at 28%. And then there was a group that was saying they were working in excess of 11 hours a weekend. That was 21%. That's a lot of time. It is a lot of time. And and again, that was 2017. And, and I think that if you start looking at this only through the eye of the pandemic, you're going to start to try and apply a solution that only applies to what you're seeing on the surface and not what you see underneath. Kimmy O'Thorne, it's been a pleasure to hear from you uh, with your perspective on the work that you're doing within the New Haven Public Schools. Again, Kimmy is Restorative Practice Program Director for New Haven Public Schools and also a New Haven Teachers Union delegate. We're going to talk more about solutions right after the break. But Kimmy, thank you so much for your time on the show. Thank you. This is Connecticut Public's Where We Live. Catherine Shen, education reporter, is still with us. And after the break, we're going to also hear about ongoing research in Connecticut to improve the well-being of local educators. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's ongoing research by UConn Health, UConn School of Medicine, and UMass Lowell on ways to improve the mental well-being of teachers. Joining us now on Zoom is Jen Cavallari, Associate Professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences at UConn School of Medicine, also Director of the Total Teacher Health Project. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. We've been referencing a recent RAND report during the show, and we heard from Cameo about a climate study that she uh, put out uh, even before the pandemic. And I'm wondering, you know, what you and your researchers are noting in Connecticut related to this ongoing research about teacher mental well-being. Yes, we recently had the opportunity to speak with 28 teachers across Connecticut in some focus groups, and we asked them just that, how their mental well-being has been over the last uh, few months and years of the pandemic. So we talked to them in the spring of this past year, and when they told us about the stress, the main things that were really contributing to their stress was the high expectations that have been placed on teachers. So we heard from them that they felt as if they were being asked to run business as usual, although they were in the midst of a pandemic. And they often had to balance the different expectations of teaching and educating students while uh, meeting their the students' well-being needs. And they are in lots of new initiatives, which they had limited guidance on. They also talked about relationships with administrators. As we've heard earlier in the program, there is a lack of appreciation that they were feeling and a lack of communication. And they felt as if they sometimes had limited support from their administrators. Mm. That's an interesting finding uh, in the RAND report. I had cited the policy researcher and co-author Cy Doan saying that mental health supports exist, but leaders should avoid, district leaders should avoid the appearance of treating wellness as a superficial or short-term problem. Uh, Through your research, uh, is that backed up here in Connecticut, that there may be programs, but they're not, they're just scratching the surface. Yes, one of the things that we're hoping to do with our research is just that more than scratch the surface and really get at the root causes of educators' stressors. And so what we're doing is we're creating teacher teams and we teamed up with two school districts here in Connecticut, both Windsor and Vernon. And These teacher teams will be tasked with reviewing survey data. So we'll be surveying educators in both districts and identifying the factors in their school district that are impacting educator stress. And we're going to be urging these educators to, in addition to thinking about um, treating or, or addressing the stress that teachers already have, also thinking about primary prevention. That is changing the way educators work is organizing. Those things such as the uninterrupted lunch break or bathroom breaks that may be important for educators, as well as better communication. So really getting at those root causes from a work organizational mm-hmm. level. It's interesting to hear about these teacher teams. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about, you know, when we think about how uh, new teachers um, have mentors or how teachers who've been doing this for some time, uh, you know, their level of expertise, but also, you know, what you're hearing from them in in terms of of their burnout levels. 
So these educator teams will include both new teachers as well as veteran teachers, uh, admins, uh, the not admins, but rather paraeducators. And it's our hope that the voice of different types of teachers will be present on the teacher teams to get at the different needs for each of these different groups. We heard from Stephen on, on Twitter who wrote, I'm a board-certified behavior analyst working directly with special ed programs. He writes, paras are the most vital part of our programs because they implement programs directly. Para jobs are data-intensive and physically dangerous. Uh, sometimes a younger students can become aggressive to staff on a daily basis. So when we think about all these different stressors that um, educators are under in the classroom, you know, it, it's, it's varied, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that. Definitely. So I think that we know that educators are their experts in their own job. And what we found through our research at uh, the center I belong to, the Center for the Promotion of Health in the New England Workplace, is that workers are also the experts in their own well-being. So these teams of teachers or educators really share that expertise and identify what the challenges are and help to craft the solutions. Then they work in pair with administrators to implement workplace changes that hopefully are not only effective, but sustainable. I mentioned this is ongoing research, and I'm wondering if, if you and your team have you know, identified from a policy perspective anything that the legislator, legislature rather could act upon. Well, we're just starting our research. And so this is a five-year grant. We finished year one where we've uh, held focus groups and heard from educators. And it's in these next four years that we'll be implementing the program. So it's our hope that over those four years, we will have some results that will speak to changes, policy changes that can be made at the state or national level. And we're hoping that the program that we're implementing as part of the Total Teacher Health Project will serve as a national model uh, for improving educator well-being. Mm -hmm. Catherine Shen, who's the education reporter at Connecticut Public, is still with us. Uh, Catherine, I'm wondering if you can respond to what we've heard from Jen. Um, you know, it's we know that data are important, uh, but when we think about some of the, the real uh, challenges right now for schools and school districts because of, of teacher loss, you know, there's also this expectation that, you know, there can be some solutions found quickly. I wonder if you can respond there. Sure. And I actually find the research will be really helpful, actually, uh, for the legislature in, in the future because we've been talking about teacher shortages. We've been talking about um, the lack of mental health support for teachers and paras. Um, I do know that there are plans for the next General Assembly session to to bring that back, especially for paras because um, they did not touch on salary during the last session, but they have every intention to bring it back in the next one to, to really find a solution for it. So I feel like to have research back that up will make it even more powerful. Um, sadly, we need the data, of course, but I, I feel like to have something more robust will give them a lot more to work with than what they had before. So that's sort of my my first reaction to the conversation. And and unsurprisingly, I feel like we're hearing a lot of the same comments from from all kinds of teachers from all kinds of districts. And I think it's also important to note that 
every district has a different need, um, especially with, with what Camille was saying, too, in the previous segment, that um, every classroom has a different um has different issues, have different problems that teachers need to deal with, but they're not trained to do that. And so I think there needs to be more emphasis on training in the future. And I and I feel like that's what a lot of districts are trying to do. Uh, lastly, Catherine, you mentioned Camille Thorne, who was the restorative practice uh program director for New Haven Public Schools, you know, the idea of helping improve climate for both teachers and students. Is this something that you're seeing other districts embrace, restorative practice? I think there a lot of districts are trying to do it. Um, and I, I don't know if it's necessarily to bring in someone um, like Camille Thorne in, but they are doing sort of indirect programs to help with, with the climate. So they have... Um, Things like, for example, I know Harvard Public Schools is doing programs like student leadership and to to get students more involved and to have those conversations with teachers and help build the relationships. I think I think people forget that in order to be able to have constructive conversations on those topics, teachers have to have relationships already there or building that relationship with the students. So I know a lot of school districts are actively working on on building those relationships in the classroom so they can have those better, more constructive chats about very uncomfortable topics. You've been hearing Catherine Chen, education reporter with Connecticut Public. Thank you so much, Catherine, for your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. Also, thank you to Jen Cavallari, Associate Professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences at UConn School of Medicine, also Director of the Total Teacher Health Project. We'll be checking back with you, Jen, uh, to hear more about this uh, research when it's ready to publish. That would be great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. 